How many of you have been new to the church in the last 18 months to two years? Okay, a few of you. Yeah, great. Well, I want to just say to you that you've come into, in the history of this church, you've come into probably the most radical period of change that we've ever had. So you've come into something that is going through an absolute metamorphosis, and I want to use that word exactly. I feel like we have been, uh, we have been a silkworm for eight years, and God has put us in a cocoon in the last two years, and I feel like what is starting to come out is the beautiful butterfly that He always intended the church to be. That's how radical I feel this transition has been. And we've been trying to root ourselves theologically in a number of things, in Reformed theology, in the grace of God, in the blood of Jesus, as a basic bedrock in our lives. And if you've been listening to the preaching, and I want to encourage you, get on the podcast. If you're not registered on the podcast, download the messages if you can't make it, and, and hear what God has been saying. Go back and listen to the flow of what God has been saying. We have been asking God to lead us by the Spirit along this ancient path, and He's been rooting us in some deep things that are changing us from the inside out. And it's a glorious transition. It's a glorious thing. And um, I'd like to speak to you this morning about a great theme in the New Testament and in the whole Bible, and that is inheritance as Christians, the inheritance that we have and the rewards that we enjoy as Christians. And I don't know if I'm going to get it all done this morning in one hit, but I'm going to start this morning, and we'll see where God takes us over the next month or so. But recently, we've been looking at the thing, my, my, my contribution in terms of the pulpit, I've been preaching around holiness. How do we live a holy life? And we've been beginning to discover that it's a, work, it's a walk by the Spirit, and Jesus is, is concerned that we are rooted in a holiness apart from legalism, apart from the law. Yeah? We don't want the cross plus a little bit of law. We want absolutely to be free in Christ and that our motivation is pure from our hearts, from the inside of us, by the Holy Spirit, from the inside out. Yeah? And so that has many, many implications in terms of our lives and how we live and how we parent and how we walk as Christians, that it's from the inside out. It's never autos. It's never legislated. It's never followed this pattern and it will all come right. It's a walk of love. It's a heart of devotion by the Spirit, purely from our hearts, from the inside out, and then a whole lot of other stuff falls into place. And we've used this phrase over and over again that Michael Eaton kind of introduced us to. If you walk by the Spirit deliberately, you fulfill the law accidentally. And you can apply that in many, many areas of your life. If you aim at Jesus in your marriage, purposefully, accidentally, some stuff is going to happen in your marriage. If you aim at Jesus purposefully as you parent, a whole lot of stuff is accidentally going to happen. You don't aim at the stuff you want to happen. You aim at Jesus. And as you aim at Jesus, a whole lot of other stuff begins to fall into place. And so I'd like to look at this great theme of reward and inheritance today. And maybe for you that would be a troubling subject. Maybe you say, well, how can we, should we be motivated by rewards as Christians? Isn't that a little bit commercial? Isn't that a little bit carnal, a little bit soulish to say that actually as Christians we are motivated by reward? Well, I want to say a couple of things at the outset. That's not the theme of the Scripture ever. Jesus constantly urges us, and the Holy Spirit consciously urges us to be motivated and to live for the glory of reward. Always. 
And there's a sense that the Holy Spirit is always urging us deeper to more so that we can enjoy more of the life of God, more of Him, and surely that in itself is a great reward. Okay? And I'd like to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, just to kick off this morning, verse 24. If you can turn with me there, I'm reading it out of the English Standard Version. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? All the runners compete, but only one receives the prize. So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul talking to the Corinthian church. Now, I know from from my life, running experience, I used to run a lot when I was younger and dangerously good looking. (laughs) When I was in my 20s, I ran a lot. I ran the uh, uh, ultra marathon a number of times called the Comrades Marathon, which was about, it's 90 kilometers. And when you are training to run, your whole life is focused on the race. And your whole timetable of your life, and like when you're not married and you don't have kids, you can afford to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and you get up at 5, and you run 10 to 15 kilometers in the morning. And you're careful what you eat. So when you're training for a marathon, you read, you'll eat a lot of carbohydrates, especially before, before the race. It's called carbo-loading. You stuff yourself with pasta for about 10 days before the race. And at the peak of my training, I would get up in the morning, and I'd run 15 k's in the morning, and sometimes in the evening between 20 and 25 k's. And then in the midweek, I'd do a big run, 30 k's. And on the weekend, I'd run a marathon. I did that for months, okay, 42 kilometers. And the purpose was not the training. The purpose was that I wanted to finish the comrades. And all the training, all the eating, all the discipline is, is because you want to break the tape and you want to finish the, the race. You discipline yourself for the sake of the prize for what is to come. And I ran, my best time was 8.45, and I was gutted to hear that Albert Halford did it in 8.43. But he did. Good for him. He also trained his body. He also, I mean, there's a sense that when we're running a race, and that's Paul, it's what, it's what Paul is saying, is you, you run the race, this race of life. And the longer I'm alive, the more I realize it is a marathon. And we have been, we've seen with our kids uh, as they've grown up at school here, it hasn't always been like this, but recently in the last 10 years, the kind of theme of school when they compete is, as long as everyone competes, it's, it's okay. And everyone must get a little prize, even if you came 10th. You get a little certificate saying, well done, and a little sticker. Well, there's merit in that in some ways, but I want to tell you, there's only one who gets the prize. And Jesus... Jesus urges us by the Spirit that when we do this thing called life, we run to win the prize, not to just finish. It is finished in Him, absolutely. The blood of Jesus has done all, but as we live, there's a motivation on the inside of us that we go for gold. Amen. And what does the Bible say about Jesus? The Bible says Jesus also lived for reward. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside everything that easily entangles us, a sin which uh, 
cling so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to who? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he knew what was coming. He knew what lay on the other side of the cross. He knew what lay on the other side of resurrection. And the the scripture goes on to say that he endured the cross. And what is his reward? He is now seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, ruler over all things. Yes! What a powerful picture of what God wants to do. I want to just begin, just as Psalms, you know, the Psalms begin with David saying what, un, what righteousness is not, okay? I would like to just take five minutes or so to, to define what I believe inheritance is not, okay? So we can begin to aim at what it is, all right? I don't believe that, I, that when we talk about inheritance, it's some distant promise of heaven or paradise after we die. That's not the fullness of our inheritance, Okay? There are some believe that salvation is the fullness of our inheritance. Salvation is just the door. We are, in the spa, we are in the starting blocks when we are saved, and we leap out of the starting blocks, and we have this whole life to walk with Jesus, to, to, to enjoy Him by the Holy Spirit, and it's an adventure with God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when I say inheritance, I'm not just talking about salvation. Acts 2, verse 41, you know it well. It says, those who accepted the message were baptized... About 3,000 were added to their number that day, and they devoted themselves to these things, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And there was a whole lot of stuff that happened after they came to Christ. Right? Not just that. Secondly, I don't believe in a humanistic, secular idea that we purposefully go after rewards. That's not our basic motivation. The rewards that Christ promises us when we look at the gospel are the rewards of those who follow him. All right? If we follow Christ deliberately, rewards happen accidentally in our lives. We don't aim at the rewards, we aim at Jesus. All right? Are you with me? Philippians 3 verse 7. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of knowing Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of following Jesus, of knowing Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. Amen. I also don't believe that we have a quick inheritance. <laughs> it's a quick thing that we have everything now. Hebrews 6 verse 11, what does it say? It says, we want each of you to know the same diligence to the end, in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, to irritate those, but to imitate, to irritate those, to, Im- to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Amen? There is a sense we've got to persevere through this thing. I don't believe either that one generation has the fullness of the inheritance of God. No. God is, restor- is restoring things through all of church history, and our generation, God will give us something that he wants to restore in our generation. And if you look at church history, he's he's been busy at work ever since Jesus was resurrected from the dead and went up to be with his father. God has been at work in his church, and he will continue to be at work in his church until Christ comes back again. We don't have it all, 
this generation does not have it all. We have what God has for us. Romans 4, 6. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it might be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Amen. God has got works prepared in advance for us to walk in as a community of believers, every single one of us. And I also believe this, that the material's inheritance should never, ever outweigh the profound thing that the kingdom is coming and that is our true source source of joy. We are not after material things. We are after the things that God wants to give us in terms of the kingdom. Numbers 18.20 says, The Lord said to Aaron, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share amongst them. I am your share and your inheritance. That's what God says. God says to Aaron, he also says it to the Levites, to the priests. He says, no, I'm your inheritance. You're not going to have an allotted inheritance like the rest of Israel. You're not going to have possessions and land like they are going to do. I'm your inheritance. The fullness of your reward is me. I think God is telling us in advance of something that is available for us under grace in the New Testament. I also am very skeptical of formula-based Christian living as a means to inheritance. If you just do this, this will be the result. All you have to do is follow these principles and automatically this will happen in your life. It's never automatic. We're going to look at that now. There's always, even under grace, we will see what God says. I want to look at three pictures of inheritance in the Bible. I hope I'll get through them this morning. One, Abraham and how inheritance worked with Abraham. Secondly, under the law, under the Mosaic law, how did inheritance, well, how was inheritance understood? And thirdly, under grace, how then do we understand our inheritance under the grace of God? Well, it's, Abraham is a great picture. Abraham is the, called the father of our faith. And if you look in the Old Testament, there's 650 references to inheritance. Okay? In the New Testament, there are about 48 verses that directly refer to inheritance. Let's look at uh, Genesis 15, if you want to turn there, please, verse 7. As a start this morning, looking at Abraham, there's this amazing promise that God says to Abraham, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. And then Abraham kind of says back to God, he says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? It's a good question. Lord, thank you for your promise. Thank you that you've said I'm going to inherit the land. But how am I to know that I'm going to possess it? Well, the question is, did did that happen over just a certain period of time? Did it happen after Abraham died? Or was it a result of his obedience? Well, the Scripture always explains itself. Always, if we search, there's always the answer is there. So if we, we know it's from Genesis 15, verse 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he was, was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham is saved, okay? Abraham is saved in the Old Testament. He's saved. So it's not an issue of salvation. He's already saved. It's already happened. The Bible says his faith has been credited to him as righteousness. He's saved. So his inheritance has got nothing to do with him being saved, all right? God plucked him out of obscurity. He was an obscure person in an obscure place, and God put his hand into his life and said, I choose you. 
and you are going to be the father of many nations. Isn't that beautiful? How many of you feel in obscurity like you're just one little fish in a huge, huge world pond? I feel like that. Well, there's good news for all of us because God chooses the foolish things of the world to profoundly impact the world and to cause the wise to go, what happened? Amen. Then if we go from Genesis 15 to Genesis 22, verse 16, this is in the context of Abraham offering up his son Isaac. And you know the story? Uh, Abraham says, we're going to go up the mountain to worship God. And he takes his son. He says, come, my boy, let's go up. By this time, Isaac is a teenager. And they go up. And along the way, Isaac says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Where's the sacrifice? I mean, normally we take a goat or a ram or something. Where's the sacrifice? And, and, and Abraham, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this profound thing. He says, God himself will provide the sacrifice. And the scripture says he thought in his heart that he was going to sacrifice his son and God would resurrect him from the dead. That's what the scripture says. So that's what Abraham, that's the motivation of his heart. This, 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 this son that he had waited for took so long and he's prepared to put him on the altar and sacrifice him. And then after this, you know the story. He stopped from doing that and there's a, there's a ram in the thicket that becomes a sacrifice. But then God says uh, this to Abraham afterwards. He says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. For Abraham... This future promise that God had said, I'm giving you this, this, this land, this future inheritance for Abraham was a reward for his obedience because he obeyed God, because he trusted God, because he had faith in what God had said. God says, because of your obedience, I will give you this inheritance. And I've, I've tried to make it quite clear. It's got nothing to, to do with him being saved. He was already saved. Genesis 15, seven chapters before, he was already saved. It's got nothing to do with his salvation at all. And how many of you have, have not noticed in your lives that God pours His blessing out into your life when you simply obey God and you forgive someone? Yeah? I had a fight with Helen last week. We do fight regularly. And you know, well, it is regular every couple of weeks. Come on, let's be honest. But how many of you know that sometimes in the home there's that kind of icy silence and who's going to be the first one to say, sorry? And the one partner says to the other, how are you doing? And you say, I'm fine. And everybody knows you're not fine. You're just holding out for a little bit longer. <laughs> Anyone had that? Yeah. But part of our inheritance as married, married couples, as believers, as Christians, surely part of our inheritance as sons and daughters that are married together is a contented and a loving marriage. Surely, that's part of our inheritance, the fullness of our inheritance. Forgiveness is an act of obedience. Sometimes I know I'm right. Sometimes Helen, she knows she's right. But there's a level that goes deeper than that. If we're always communicating at this level of rightness, true reconciliation, forgiveness never comes. There's a deeper level that God wants from us. Where there's a, an opening of our hearts and we are the first ones to say, my darling, I'm so sorry I've hurt you. Yeah? 
This is, the, this is walking by the Spirit. You want to know how to walk by the Spirit? That's walking by the Spirit. Surely, God has saved us out of darkness into light. Surely in our marriages, there's an abundance that God has for us. It is obedience that we exercise when we simply say, I'm sorry, I forgive you, that releases the fullness of the inheritance into your marriage or stops the inheritance of your marriage that God has for you. Are you hearing what I'm, hearing what I'm saying? That's how we enjoy the full inheritance of God. When the Holy Spirit says, my, my, my boy, that thing, you've got to deal with that. We refuse to deal with it. Something of the fullness of what God has for us is blocked. If we deal with it, it's like the water just flows in our hearts and in our lives. As we obey the Spirit, the inheritance is unlocked in our lives. And so let's move from Abraham now. Let's move to this, uh, this thing of the Mosaic Law, because that, that for me is a key, crucial, crucial, crucial issue. We are convinced under God that the fullness of what God has for us can never be achieved by obeying the law. For all of you who have been told in your lives that you ought to do some stuff as Christians, I want to tell you, under God, the blood of Jesus is sufficient for everything. You walk by the Spirit and He will add all things to you. There's no ought to in the Bible. We live lives of compulsion that are not motivated by the Holy Spirit. They are motivated by external things. And God has been radically saying it from the inside out. This is about a heart of devotion. Now you might find that uncomfortable. Because it's much easier for me to stand up every week, or whoever preaches, to stand up every week and say, just do these things. Just you do them. No, that takes responsibility off you as a priest. There's another mediator now in your life. It's the pastor. Whatever the pastor says you must do, you do. No, no, there's one mediator. His name is Jesus. We look to him. As we look to Jesus, he tells you on a daily basis what you need to do. Not me, not the preacher, not the pastor, not the Holy Spirit. He is the mediator in your life. He points you to Jesus. It's so easy for us to rely on other people, and then it takes the responsibility away from me, for my own life. No, no, your walk is your walk. My walk is my walk. My marriage is my marriage. You can't be responsible for Helen. I'm responsible for Helen. I'm responsible for myself. And I'm learning that actually that's the most profound thing about this Christian walk is being responsible for yourself. As we learn to be responsible for ourselves, I'll talk about that just now. But let's go to Leviticus chapter 20 because we want to talk about inheritance under the law because I think there's a lot of a lot of stuff in the church worldwide that tries to add just a little bit of the law just to make it all all right. You know, if we just, just a little bit of telling people, no, we can't have that little bit of telling people. We're free under Jesus. Well, I'm excited this morning. I trust you're going to get more and more excited with me. Leviticus 20, verse 24. I've said to you, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey, I'm the Lord your God who have separated you from the people. That's the promise that God gives to the people. I want to point out three little things here. The inheritance for the people is something that God is giving them, but they have to also take it. It's like this dual thing that happens. God says, I'm giving it to you, but you have to take it. Every place that your foot will tread, I will give you. That's under the law. So there's a sense of God promises, and they also have to walk into it. And that can be true for us as well. 
It's possible that each of us can have an inheritance, but you've not yet taken hold of the fullness of the inheritance that God has for you. There's so much that God wants to, to, to lead us into, so much for what He has for us, but there's a sense that the truth of the Scripture in Matthew says it's violent men, it's forceful men that take hold of the kingdom. It's those that are saying, yeah, Lord, I will walk. I'm in this partnership with you. I'll walk by the Spirit, and as I walk by the Spirit, I will receive the fullness of what you have for me. And the personal thing that God has been challenging me into in my life in the last number of weeks in particular is learning to address myself and to speak to myself and to see what God is doing in me by faith and not allowing myself to dwell on those things from the past that have robbed joy, that are negative, and that drag me down. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a good waking up person. I ain't. I mean, I'm always amazed the other preachers I know who say they get out of bed on Monday and they just like, they bound and they're full of energy and they just, I'm not like that. Monday morning is the hardest morning for me to get out of bed. After I've preached on a Sunday, I think the first thing that enters my head is what I shouldn't have, what I should have said, what I shouldn't have said. I offended this person. I did this. I didn't say hello to this one. Worst day, Monday morning, getting out of bed. But I'm learning to do this to throw off that sin that wants to come straight in the morning because I'm responsible for my mood on a Monday morning. I am. I can either let it come on me or I can do what, what Trevor said we should do in the worship. And that's been an inspiration to me, that little portion. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you? Jesus done all. You don't have to be downcast right now on a Monday morning, 6.30, you choose right now to speak to yourself and say, my soul, you're not going to control me today. I'm in control of you by the power of the Spirit that is within me. And I'm learning to do that. And if we allow things to be birthed in our minds and birthed in our, the mindsets, the disappointments, they just come flooding back every time you wake up in the morning. And that's an active thing. It's a violent thing. You, you've got to take control of it. That too is walking by the Spirit. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, his little extract, he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, its cause, and its cure. And he has a little comment on that little portion. I want to read it to you. For me, it's been a profound thing in my life. Have you realized most of your unhappiness in, in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those th thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You haven't originated them, but they start talking to you and they bring back the problems of yesterday. Someone's talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you downcast, my soul? He asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main thing, the main art in the matter of spiritual living it's to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. Dress yourself. Preach to yourself. Question yourself. You have to say to your soul, why are you so downcast? What business have you to be disquieted? Man, these are profound questions. What business do you have to be downcast, my soul? You turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, challenge yourself, exhort yourself and say, hope in God. I want to encourage you this morning, if you were like me, 
If you get out of bed on Mondays and you feel a little down, a little blue, say to yourself, and this is going to be the challenge because I'm going to have to wake up tomorrow morning. What business do you have this morning to be down? No, my soul, I'm speaking to you right now. The man in the mirror, you have no right to be downcast. The fullness of grace is available to you. You have all that you need for life and godliness. Rise up. Amen? Or, and he says, you can carry on muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. But then, go on and remind yourself of God, who he is, what God is, and what he has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Go on and remind yourself of those things. And having done all that, on this great note, end. Defy yourself. Defy other people. Defy the devil and the whole world and say together with this man, I shall yet praise him. Amen. It is good news. That's walking by the Spirit. That's learning to walk by the Spirit. Part of our holy living is speaking God's destiny over yourself and God's destiny over your own life. Not those things that were there planted by the devil to rob, kill, and destroy you. Amen? Secondly, so that's the first thing under the law, that the inheritance was available, but the people had to possess it. Secondly, the Levites, the priests under the law, had no land of their own. They had no inheritance of their own. They served in the temple. And if you read Numbers 18, verse 23, or Deuteronomy 12, 12, it says this, The Levites shall do the work of service in the tent of meeting, in the sanctuary. They shall bear their iniquity. And it shall be a perpetual, perpetual state throughout your generations and among the people of Israel that they shall have no inheritance. What does that mean? Why were the priests the ones that didn't have any physical land or any physical inheritance? Well, God is always giving us clues about what is to come for us in Jesus. This is a shadow. The answer is plain. Because the priests were a picture. They were a picture for the whole of Israel, for all of the, all, all of the people that they represented, that ultimately their dependence was not on their inheritance, was not on the land, was not on the milk and honey. It was on God. It was on Him. He was the fullness of their inheritance. So the Levites had no, the priests had no physical share. Yahweh was the fullness of their inheritance. Christ. And it was then privileged to experience the presence of God. If you read the Numbers 18, verse 5. I mean, in my devotions in the mornings, I've trying to read the Bible in a year. That's not a law for any of you. I'm just saying that's what I'm trying to do. Man, I've battled through uh, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Yes. You want to you get yourself under the law, go and read Leviticus. There's a law for everything. Everything. I was discussing with Helen one day. She said, well, it's like, a bit like a medical journal. You know, if your body's damaged in this way, you have to go and offer the sacrifice there. Free yourself from that. And if you're a lady, you're having a period, you have to do all of this stuff, and you've got, you've got to live. You want to live under the law? Then live under the law. Okay. You want to become half Jewish? Don't become half Jewish. Become fully Jewish. And go and live under the law. I, I'm not there. I ain't there. I'm living under grace. Grace of God. Sorry. That was just me. <laughs> It was their delight to serve God. It was their delight to serve God. Uh, now, Numbers 18.20 says, I'm your share and your inheritance. I'm the fullness of your inheritance. And the inheritance was priests was directly under the control of God and had nothing to do with material things or land or possessions. Nothing to do with it. 
That's the picture, the shadow of what is to come for us in Christ. Another thing, lastly, is that um, God also had an inheritance in his people. God had an inheritance in his people. Deuteronomy 4.20, The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are to this day. And in the very next verse, if you read verse 21, he then promises the land to them. It's, there's, there's like there's this link that if they are an inheritance for God's delight, he will give them an inheritance for their delight. It's like the two working together. So Abraham was blessed because of his faith, because of his obedience, and that was before the law was given. It's clear from the, what I've just tried to explain, that under the law, to enjoy the inheritance that God had for you, you had to fully obey the law. Fully obey the law. That's why I'm saying we cannot have a gospel with a little bit of the law. Because the people like to quote Deuteronomy 28. If you do this, I will bless you. If you do that, I will curse you. That ain't the grace of God. That is not the gospel. That is the law. I want you to be a generous people. In every area of your life. Not so, And the motivation can never be that the, we, we preach generosity so that the devourer doesn't come and steal from us can never be the motivation. It will not last. It is always, God, you are generous to me, not because of what I do, but because I am your son. And I, I know that as a father, I want the best for my boys. And you want the best for me. And that is why you bless me. Regardless of what I do. That's a profound thought. When you behave badly or you behave well, God loves you exactly the same. I never want to be a father with my own children that only rewards them when they do well. Matt, you score six A's at school, this is what I'm going to get you. When you don't, no reward. What is that? Is that love for him? That's saying, I recognize how you perform, not who you are. God recognizes who we are, not how we perform. Even when we perform badly, he loves us exactly the same. That should be good news. That's good news to me. Thank you, God. Okay. Am I a little bit over the top this morning? <laughs> okay. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. We're under Christ. The law is defunct. There's no value whatsoever. Then how do we understand inheritance? How do we understand this thing of reward under grace? Well, please go with me to John 17, verse 3. Can I have some water if anyone could please? Jesus says an amazing thing. He says, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? Jesus is saying, this is eternal life. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This is eternal life, that they know you, and they know Jesus. And if you read the prayer that Paul preaches to, uh, prays for the Ephesian church, he talks about my prayers that you know God better, and he defines it in three ways. He talks about that we might know the hope to which we called, the inheritance that we enjoy, thank you so much, and the power of the Holy Spirit. If you read, go and read uh, the first chapter of of Ephesians. And all those things are grouped under this thing of knowing him better. I want to know Christ better. 
So I want to say to you, as we talk about inheritance under grace, not being motivated by compulsion or ought to or have to or anything like that, the key to prosperity in our lives is Jesus. Not some kind of faith formula. It ain't. The key to prosperity in our lives is Jesus. Psalm 16, verse 5. Lord, you have assigned to me my portion and my cup. You know what peace that brings to your life? When you say, Lord, thank you. There are seasons that I have much. There are seasons that I have little. But you know what, Lord? I'm so grateful you have assigned to me my portion and my cup. And I rest in you, my Father. Who's good to me? What's the best for me? Beautiful. No more striving. No more, oh, if I do this, God, you've got to bless me. God wants to bless you anyway. Just because you're his son. Just because he loves you. You don't have to do anything to, to, to deserve his love. He loves you while you were still dead in your sin. While you were still a murderer. While you were still whatever you were. He loved you completely, perfectly. And he loves you exactly the same now. That's the gospel. That is good news. The key to leadership. We, we, we as a community, are trusting God for, for much. Well, what is the key? We need, people need to rise up as priests. But what do we do? Do we preach leadership? No. We preach Jesus. If we preach Jesus, leaders will rise in the community by accident. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of? Of Anthony. As I follow the example of Trevor. As I follow the example of anyone. Hugh. Donnie. No, no, no. We, we follow the example of Christ. We trust in God for miracles as a community. I, I, I desire to see the Holy Spirit poured out. When we meet, there will be radical testimonies of healing and people being set free from addictions and and disease, and we'll see people saved regularly. What is the key? Do we kind of try and um, create the right atmosphere? The right the lights just at the right tone. The right, if we just get the right song, man, the right song. So we, we rush around, and we see what's working for Bill Johnson. Okay, we choose that song, and we play. Oh, no. Okay, it's Hill Songs. No, we run off. Okay, what's the song? Okay, that, that's working for them. We do Hill Songs. No. What is the key? Jesus. Jesus is the key. We love him. As we love him, he'll pour out blessings. I love music, by the way, and I'm not knocking Hill songs or Bill Johnson. I'm just saying. We can run after all things. Whatever your style is, whatever you like. It's not the thing. The thing is Jesus. We want to see miracles poured out. Galatians 3, verse 2. Paul asked this profound question the Galatian church. He says, I want to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law, by doing the right thing? Did you receive the Spirit by doing the right thing? Or by believing what you heard? Did you just simply believe the gospel? And when you believed the gospel, a whole lot of stuff came. Or did you do, did, did it come, the Spirit come just because you followed some rules? Uh, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles amongst you because you follow the rules? Because you observe the law? or because you believe what you heard. I've said this already. The key to a healthy marriage, not marriage seminars. I've done marriage seminars, and we probably might do marriage seminars in the future. 
There's some good things you can learn from people that have walked the road, that have wisdom in their marriage, certainly. But the key to a healthy marriage is loving Jesus passionately as a husband and loving Jesus passionately as a wife. And when you're passionate about Christ in your marriage, the automatic thing is that he's going to draw you together and the, the mystery of that thing, of the two becoming one, becomes real in your life. That is it. We don't want it to be so simple. Because you see, we like to think that we've had something to do with it. Isn't that true? Well, I, I actually, I'm doing the five principles of, of marriage for men. And man, I just, you can just see my wife. She's just like, she's blossoming. Right, thank you, Lord, that I'm so, what, such a wonderful husband. Isn't that really the true motivation? No. Love Jesus, men. Wives, love Jesus passionately. I, I, can't, I can't command you. I'm trying to encourage you. That is as simple as it is. Love Jesus with all of your heart and all of your strength and all of your might. Husbands, are you the guy that your wife has to drag to church in the morning? Wife, are you the wife that has to be dragged into the meeting, kicking and screaming? No. It's a, it's a passion, surely, that we want to we come to be with God's people because He's good. And he blesses us, and he loves us, and he's got good things for us. And there was joy, it says to David, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. They said, oh God, I can't wait to be with your people. Uh, uh, this, this for me was like Acts 11 verse 20. Some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyprus, you know what struck me about this little portion? There's an there's, We don't know who these men were. It says there were some men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Some of these men, these kind of, no one knows who they are men, they went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. <laughs> these anonymous people, they go to Antioch, and they start preaching the good news of Jesus, and the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people get saved. You know what we do? If we can get the right guy, the right team, the right people, we're going to get a, we'll plant a church and it will flourish. <laughs> they didn't even, we don't even know who the people were. And no one says they were leaders. No one says they had 20 years of theological training. Well, I think theological training is very good and we do need to study. It just says, these guys love Jesus, and they started preaching in this community, and guess what happened? A church was burned. Key to church is planting, or to preaching the gospel is Jesus. Not the right team, the right structure. How long have I been going? Uh, take another five minutes. The key to perseverance is Christ, not psychology, not success. Hebrews 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Sorry, Hebrews 12, verse 2. The author and perfect of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning a chain, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, that you might not grow weary and lose heart. Talked about rewards. The key to our rewards is Christ, not focusing on rewards. The key to unity 
in a church. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, the last three weeks, get online and listen to Nick's messages out of James. The key to a unity in church is not insisting that we are one. The key to unity in the church is that we are one in Christ. And as we are one in Christ, and we love Christ passionately with all of our hearts, there's an overflow in the community, and people love each other deeply from the heart. Ephesians 4, 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The key to holiness, and I've been preaching into holiness, the key to holiness is Jesus, not principles for holy living. I think, you know, for me it's been an amazing thing. I think devotions are good. I think we should pray. I think we should pray regularly. I think we should read regularly. Whether you do it in big blocks or you do it in small little times, I think we should be alone with God. You know, the trick is this, is not to put others under compulsion. If you don't have a quiet time at 6 o'clock every morning, somehow you're not a good Christian. That's what the church has done for years. All the principles of how you must be holy. If you do this, then what is, it's just endorsing the, the people in the pulpit saying, well, I agree with you. Now, I want to, I want to say this to you. I, I, I believe that God has a myriad ways of speaking to this community. For me and my marriage, I've learned this. Helen hears God very differently from me. You know what? That's a liberating thing. We do not have to hear God equal, in exactly the same way. Some of you might hear God completely differently from me. The point is that you're setting time aside somewhere in your week to hear God for you and for your life and for your family and for this community. That's the point. Not that we all do it the same. Is there anyone out there? Amen. The key to our inheritance is Jesus. He's the sum total of our inheritance. Often, you know, when we get saved, we begin this new life with Jesus. We see Jesus as the means to our comfort. We see Jesus as the means to our provision, as the means of our direction and our peace. But I believe that God wants us to go much, much, much deeper than that and to simply come to this point of realizing that intimately knowing Him is our greatest reward and it surpasses all things. Knowing Him, loving Him, walking with Him. Spurgeon is one of my heroes, and he, he says this, and I'm finishing with this. Yet though we are always changing, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. The Christian knows no change with regard to God. He may be rich today and poor tomorrow. He may be sickly today and well tomorrow. He may be in happiness today. Tomorrow he may be distressed. But there is no change with regard to his relationship to God. If he loved me yesterday, he loves me today. My unmoving mansion, my secure place, my fortress, my castle, or whatever you want to call it, my unmoving mansion of rest is the Lord. Let my prospects be blighted. Let hopes be blasted. Let joy be withered. Let mildew destroy everything. I have lost nothing of what I have in God. He is my strong habitation where too I can continually 
resort. I'm a pilgrim in the world, but my home is in God. In the earth I wander, but in God I dwell in quiet rest. A place where we are genuinely enjoying Jesus, for Jesus' sake, not for reward, not for blessing, not for help, not for miracles, not because we want to see people saved. When we live in that place, I believe we live powerful lives that change others and keep others free at the same time. We're motivated from that place. One of my friends said this, the litmus test for what we are truly aiming at is the depth of our heart, uh, in the depth of our heart comes when lesser things are taken away, when our position is lost, when trouble comes, when our prayers are not answered. Is Christ my sufficiency or not? When lesser things take on an idolatrous position in our hearts, when they are removed, and God will remove them, when we feel useless, displaced, confused, even suicidal, is Christ our sufficiency or not? I want to finish with Colossians 3 verse 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. The main difference between inheritance under the law and inheritance under grace is that under the law, obedience was required fully, completely to the Mosaic law. But under grace, our obedience is out of love for Jesus and response to the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. As we make Christ our focus, as we aim at Jesus deliberately, we begin to walk into our inheritance accidentally. As we walk by the Spirit deliberately, we accidentally receive our rewards from our Father in heaven, both here on earth now, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our relationships, in our business dealings, and we receive the fullness of our rewards in eternity. That's what it is that God is saying us as a community. I trust that encourages you this morning.